This week on Forward, Jules and I discuss homelessness, billionaires, performative politics, and much more. Join us this week on Forward. And we are back. Welcome back, Jules. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I heard you left the country for the first time in your life recently. Yeah, 24 years old, left the country for the first time in my life. Um, grew up going to vacation like Florida, basically, and haven't taken a vacation in the past, I'd say, two and a half years. Sure. A lot of people, same boat. Yeah. And so it was, I'm such a workaholic, so it was kind of hard to step away, but it was like super refreshing. It just reminded me that solitude is important for everyone and taking a break is definitely important for everyone. It helps you in the long term be better. So, yes, you heard yeah. it here. Even young, world-class social media influencers <laughs> like Jules need to take a break, get some detox. No, it's like such a toxic work culture today, especially with work from home. So, like, I mean, I love work from home. I, th I, I'm kind of like a squirrel in a lot of like situations in college. I studied in a library, so it's like anyway, work from home. It's even harder to shut down work. Everyone knows that. Yep. Yeah, it was a good forced time to unplug um, and really reju rejuvenating. Because I think you think when you go on vacation, you're like, oh, I'm going to miss out on so much like time and energy I could be putting into work. But I'm like, okay, now I can come back like stronger and better with a refreshed totally. mind. Especially just reset. Especially you might, might be a bit more inspired, balanced, productive, et cetera, et cetera. 100%. I mean, a lot of the times breaks are the most productive things you can do. It's hard to do. So I've been a CEO of a number of organizations, and there was one company where... I would tell people to take vacation, they would not. And then mm -hmm. someone came to me and said, hey, Andrew, the only way people are gonna take vacation around here is if you take vacation, so you should take a vacation. And I was like, okay, it's yep. not what you say, it's what you do. So then I took a vacation and really enjoyed the heck out of it. <laughs> so make sure and get your break this summer, people. I'd say two things that are massive Kickstarters to your feeling uh, actually separated from, from work. Uh, number one is travel and a change of setting. Yep. Super helpful. And the second thing is nature, which can be related to travel, but sometimes, you know, you can just get some nature near you. It's hard to touch grass today sometimes. <laughs> so many screens in front of your face. Yeah, touch that grass. <laughs> there's a meme that I think a lot of people have seen that I, I think is hysterical, but there's like a person in a waterfall happy, and then uh, the language is like, this poor schmuck doesn't have a smartphone and doesn't know why he should be miserable, hmm. which is pretty apt because, uh, you know, like we all check that <laughs> phone and then see like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, the sinking feeling, ugh. So I was on the road last week. I was in Portland, Oregon, which I have been to a number of times. Thank you, Portland, for hosting me. It was great. Endorsing a gubernatorial candidate there, Betsy Johnson, who I got together with awesome. while I was there. She's an independent. Imagine an independent winning uh, governor's seat in Oregon, uh, you know, I, I would love to help see that happen. Uh, and so if you're in Oregon, check out Betsy Johnson. If you're not in Oregon and you like the idea of an independent uh, winning a governor's seat, uh, she's a true uh, reach across the aisle, problem solver, get things done, very practical, very pragmatic, that sort. Uh, so got together with Betsy when I was in Oregon. But one of the problems that Oregon was struggling with was homelessness at least certainly in portland there's a city center and the uber driver you know you get information from uber drivers but they were like hey you know watch out downtown portland and then yep. i talked to people 
And when I went into Portland, yes, there were some tents on sidewalks and, and uh, the, the rest of it. When you think about homelessness as a problem right now in America, what city do you think of first, Jules? Um, I hear San Francisco a lot in the news lately, but also just like New York, kind of, you know, our major cities. So. The, the big three I think of are San Francisco, New York, and L.A. Yep. But then being in Portland, I was like, wow, it's a significant problem in Portland, like a very significant issue. And when's the last time you were there? The last time I was in Portland was when I was running for president, and mm -hmm. it was approximately 2019. So I did a rally there. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Portland. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> but it, it got me reflecting on why homelessness is such a pressing issue in these cities and how people are responding, how government is and is not responding. One of the common things about those four cities, but I'm going to say this phenomenon extends to, you know, I'm sure like another half dozen, dozen cities yeah, for sure. uh, around the country, is that they're all in blue cities. Uh, they're all very, very Democrat-y. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it got me reflecting on what the commonalities were. And it also had me thinking about an article that came out last week by Nellie Bowles about why is San Francisco a failed city. Uh, it's an article in The Atlantic. Have you read that article? Um, I just went through it. I got through about two-thirds of it, and it is really good. I highly suggest people go. It depicts the picture, paints it really, really well about what's going on there as someone who lived there for years and recently moved out of the city. So, Yeah, so when I was talking to people in Portland, they said that there's something they call the homeless in industrial complex. You can throw industrial complex on anything yeah. and it, it's a pretty good description. But what they talk about is there are a bunch of nonprofits and service organizations and government agencies that are meant to ease the homelessness problem, uh, but somehow there are still lots of homeless people and the resources don't seem to be diminishing the issue. So people are voting with their feet. And in the case of Portland, that means people leaving the city proper and heading uh, in some cases to suburbs, in some cases just out of state entirely. Yep. And I thought to myself, wow, that totally is happening in San Francisco, in New York. And the Nellie Bowles article talks about the fact that there are these liberals or progressives or Democrats in office that, that she says are LARPing values of compassion while people are dying on the street in front of us. And I thought that was maybe the strongest language I'd seen applied. So LARPing, if you don't know, do you, are you a geek, Jules? You know what LARPing is? I don't. I was just going to ask. <laughs> Sorry, funny. not a geek. <laughs> I, but but th this, this is a really interesting critique because uh, it's live action role playing. Okay. Um, and so right now in American life, it is much easier to express values than to live them. Oh, okay. And, and yep. one of the toughest <laughs> things is that at this point, communication is demonstration. So in the old days, if I had compassion for someone, um, maybe I would help them. Yep. Um, today, I would put out a social media post saying, uh, oh, I really care about this group or I should help them. So basically virtue signaling? Yeah, essentially it's like expression has replaced action. Oh, right, yes. And, and expression has replaced action among our political class. The, well, the, the main thing that they'll say, and unfortunately this goes back to the homeless industrial complex, is we're going to spend 10, 50, 100 million dollars on helping the homeless. And so then you have these political conversations around like, are you spending enough? Are you spending too little? Uh, the problem, though, is that no one ever knows whether the money is being spent effectively. Yep. And here in New York City, the direct expense around the homeless population is something like $58,000 per person per year, plus or minus. 
higher than like average salaries in many areas. Or now, even even for you as a young person, you hear that number and you must think you must just think about how much you pay for rent. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> so so we're we're paying uh, in each of these cities half a dozen to a dozen agencies. Let's call it thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a head, but it's not often the case that that money is just being spent directly on rent for the person you just you know but and a lot of these people are struggling with mental health issues and so what is it being spent on for them well it's being spent on teams okay. of uh workers uh it's being spent on support services that may or may not be uh, utilized. Yep. And so there's a story in the Nellie Bowles article about someone calling the cops because there's a mentally ill homeless person having an episode uh, and is naked and eating a cardboard box mm -hmm. apparently. Uh, and then the cops come and say, hey, there's nothing I can do because not threatening anyone, uh, even if I were to arrest them, they'd be out in the street in a matter of hours. So, you know, carry on mm -hmm. uh, well, more or less. When they were looking to get them off the street, in this story, a homeless activist came up and said, hey, to the homeless person, you do not have to go with this um, officer if you don't want to. Like that, there's almost an excessive deference to the individual, even though in some cases the individual is mentally ill or in distress or whatnot. Uh, and the language that Nelly uses in this article in The Atlantic is uh, by pretending to be compassionate about these people, we're just watching them literally die in front of us. Yeah, well, in the article, I think they were talking about like even the language people use to describe homeless pe people. They don't like to say homeless people. They like to say people who are experiencing homelessness in San Francisco, like you're saying that just like lingu linguistics of it all. But yeah, you're watching them die on the corner of the street when you could But it's much more helping. important how we describe them yeah. than what we actually do. Yeah. You know, when I got into, I mean, I think most people completely understood what I was saying, but when I was running for mayor of New York City, I said, look, you know, homeless people have rights, you know, else have rights, mm -hmm. like people and families walking the streets who don't want to be attacked. Uh, and I said this in reference to a mom a friend in our neighborhood uh, in Manhattan who was punched in the face by a homeless person just saying like, you know, like that mom has rights too, not to get attacked. And I was attacked for this because it, it seemed like I was somehow not uh, mindful or compassionate or respectful yeah. enough of people who are struggling with mental health issues, which I think most people understood completely that like these things uh, are not uh, a dichotomy where yep. you can have compassion for the person who's struggling with an episode on the street and also have compassion for the mom who's going to get punched or the person who's, uh, you know, going to be um, attacked or victimized in some way. And in most of these cases, uh, people are going to do what the families in Portland are doing, what the families in San Francisco are doing for sure, uh, which just leave. Mm -hmm. You know, you're there and you're like, okay, if the public sector is failing in terms of providing these people services, uh, why am I here? You know, and, and in each of these instances, they're often paying a premium to yep. be there because these are expensive locations. So then they think, I'm just going to trade it in for a house in the suburbs. So the, these bureaucratic failures in democratic uh, jurisdictions are driving people out in various ways. And the, the problem is that everyone's trying to frame it as an ideological argument rather than uh, whether it's effective, practical, solving the problem, in this case, getting thousands of people who are struggling with homelessness off the streets into better environments where they can actually get some care.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I'm trying to understand like the political mindset here, aside from, you know, you know, funding these nonprofits and everything, what are the maybe political or societal incentives that uh, these Democrats are looking at in terms of not providing housing and instead doing like, yeah, these services that you're saying might not be utilized? Like what are like these incentive like the incentives that they're pushing against almost well uh so and this is another thing too that like i talk to homeless people mm -hmm. and they don't want to they do not want to go into the shelters okay. here in new york city because if you go into the shelters one of them just called it hell hmm. um because you're cohabiting with people who are having episodes and are violent mentally so they just talk about getting attacked okay and so you look at that and say well it's understandable so so then you need an alternate set of accommodations for them, which in, in New York City, one of the more successful efforts was around something called safe haven beds, where churches and uh, nonprofits and religious organizations uh, had beds available that um, often were solitary, okay. uh, mm -hmm. which is a major thing. But when you ask me about the politics of it, and this is one reason why uh, universal basic income uh, I thought was such an important idea in the presidential, was that. And again, that is not the case that, you know, like not every mentally ill homeless person is just like, hey, you could give them cash and like mm -hmm. problem solved. But there is some subset of them that you could give them cash and it'd be problem solved. Or you could put cash in the hands of people who are on the precipice of homelessness before they become homeless uh, and you would end up um, solving the problem. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the fundamental problem is that we spend money on organizations uh, that are meant to solve a problem. But then the incentive of the organization is to uh, provide jobs and compensation and resources yep. for the organization itself. And then no one wants to go in and be like, hey, I'm going to get rid of this organization. Because problem they, solved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so, so you I mean, it, it's a very, very rare organization that will put itself out of business. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and so if, if you show up on the scene and be like, hey, turns out that you know, the best way to solve this problem is for you to fire all of us and just like give the resources to the... Uh, the direct recipients, you know, like no organization is going to come out and do this. It's one reason why direct cash transfers in the international giving space, such an awesome, powerful idea, but it's a massive innovation. There's an organization called Give Directly that got started uh, not that long ago, which, by the way, ended up showing that, like, it's not uh, nets or books. Uh, well, nets are pretty good. Nets have saved a lot of lives. 
but <laughs> like or, or cows or because there are all these NGOs that in theory were like, hey, we're going to give these people what they want uh, or need, and then it turned out that you know a lot of the resources never reach the recipients. There's a lot of like corruption, a lot of bureaucracy, and so Give Directly said, let's skip it and just like give the money directly to to people, and the results were much much better. And what they were trying to show folks is like, look, would you rather give uh, $2 million that to help indigent uh, villagers in, in Africa to buy them stuff that frankly they don't need? Like you go there and there'd be like laptops gathering dust being used as paperweights, which also is you know, a real thing. <laughs> like you pretty much, you imagine that these are the things that the people need. And so you get some donors to give you money and then it goes into these things. And then are those actually what people needed? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But the, the studies clearly showed that small cash grants were much, much more effective at solving the problems of the, these folks. And the same thing's playing out here in the U.S. in different ways, where we're spending money really ineffectively on these uh, bureaucracies and organizations that uh, often are just self-perpetuating. And then people look up and say, hey, what's the problem? It's like, oh, they must not have enough money. Let's like put some more money into it. A and the accountability is absent because if you don't solve the homelessness problem, what actually happens is just people leave, your tax base goes yeah. down, but nothing happens to the folks in power most of the time because it's a one-party system and you're like, well, you know, like, what, what are you going to do, really? So what, what ha what's happening in San Francisco right now is almost unheard of, where they actually recalled three board member, school board members over, you know, slightly related issue. Okay. Um, and the uh, DA, you know, someone who openly said, look, I'm not going to um, prosecute um, offenses up to a certain level. I think it was like a thousand bucks. When I was in San Francisco, a few months ago, a Walmart, no, Walgreens was robbed in front of me. Okay. Uh, and then the, uh, another person just looked at me and said, just shrugged and said, like, San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and, and then maybe a week later, they closed that Walgreens along with a bunch of others. And Walgreens made an announcement saying we're closing seven Walgreens um, because, among other things, they keep getting robbed. So, uh, so you're, you're, and so this district attorney got recalled uh, very, very recently. And it's very, very unusual for that to happen. Um, where things got so bad and nasty that a group of citizens arose and said, we're going to get rid of you, and it won by 20 points. Uh, and you saw a real switch in attitude from the very liberal mayor of San Francisco, too, where for a while she was like, hey, let's be humane and treat people with respect to dignity, and her rhetoric switched, where she was like, let's take our city back. This is unacceptable. Uh, and having been in San Francisco, I mean, the stuff you see there will blow your mind. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the, the level of... Uh, human misery and, and decay. And I've been doing this sort of work for, I suppose, for, you know, over a decade. And, and the, the sharpest experiences I had with urban ruin and decay were in Detroit in 2011 and 2012, okay. around when they declared bankruptcy. By the way, I mean, Detroit at that era. Bad. Very, very bad. And I remember visiting Detroit in 2011 in a rental car. So you land at the airport, drive into town, whatever, I was in my rental car. And I was at a traffic light. I was red, red light. I was alone. And I really, really wanted to run that red light. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I wanted to run that red light because there were some vagrants on the outside of my car. Gotcha. They did not seem like in their, their right minds. And like it, 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 I like could have just easily imagined them just like, you know, yep. stepping in front of the car. But like it was a red light. And I was like, oh, shit, do I run this thing? 
So there were a number of things. So number one was the vagrants. Number two was the fact that uh, there were very, very few cars on the road, so it did not feel like anyone was going to be adversely impacted by my running this red. There was like very, very minimal traffic. Yep. And number three, uh, it seemed like there was very, very minimal law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, if no one's on the road and that that's a possible situation you're in, it's like, okay, yeah, let me run the, this red light right now. <laughs> let me run this red light no right now. No one's around to help me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so I, like, it was like a real act of will for me not, not to run the red light. Mm-hmm. So for some backdrop, Detroit was the most extreme example during this time, in part because its population had dropped from about 1.7 million at the peak in the, uh, let's call it 80s, to around 600,000 at this time. So you're talking about a city that was like 60% empty slash abandoned. So you'd look around and there were just like swaths of, uh, you know, derelict buildings and husks Mm -hmm. in, in certain places. And it really does mess with you but uh, even more than the buildings it was like the the sense of frankly derelict human beings so when you're in an environment like that um like it, it like there's a certain sense that you get it's it's unease it's not a good feeling you're like mm-hmm. okay you know that th- this is potentially like you know frankly unsafe um and when i was in parts of downtown san francisco you definitely feel that there are people in their right mind not in their right mind and and uh, drug addic- uh, addicts and whatnot um and so you're you're seeing these visible evidence of uh human failure that translates then into public failure because in an ideal world you think well someone should be helping this person they should be in a hospital somewhere they should be getting treatment they shouldn't you know n- not be killing themselves uh, uh on our streets uh, and that that sense is has spread to, to various places. Uh, and in Portland, it has given rise to, again, this sort of discontent with the Democratic Party yep. and, and leadership, a lot of frustration. I think that the two things that people are turning on the Democrats for are evident in what happened in San Francisco, which is homelessness slash public safety slash crime, like all, all in one bucket. And the other is schools where these school board members get, and this is another thing that people in Portland are super pissed off about, where uh, their schools are underperforming in various ways, and then you go and, and you say, and so, you know, Democrats, again, in theory, the education party. In New York City, the amount that's being spent per school child uh, in New York, I think is something around maybe $30,000 a head. Mm-hmm. So th- these are some of the numbers where you're just like, what? Uh, I think nationwide, it's... I mean, 18,000, 19,000. So, like, when, when you look at the numbers, you know, being like, okay, so where's this money going? What's happening? The, there's just a lot of frustration around these dysfunctional bureaucracies. And the, the problem is that you have a two-party system, and many of these environments essentially a one-party system. So the incentives for the schools to perform better or for these public um, agencies or homelessness services to perform better, again, they're like, well, you know, don't really need to do that much. And then you wind up with failing urban cores. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, 
I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. And then doubling down on that is, is the new work from home migration, where if you have a place like Midtown Manhattan, uh, I used to work in those office buildings in my mm-hmm. 20s. It was like, uh, did you ever work in that neighborhood in those buildings? No, no. I, I, I used to work at a WeWork, but... Was Where the, was the WeWork? Uh, it was the Times Square area, so cool. close to here. No, actually, I know that. WeWork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there. Mm-hmm. So I was in my late 20s working at this startup in the, you know, Renta HQ place, but it was in a fancy office building. So I would go to Park Avenue every day mm-hmm. for my job not every day but you know whenever i was uh, around and we were in the office and so i remember that neighborhood i remember all of the office denizens who worked in the neighborhood because that's where we all <laughs> so I would, I would see like the people going to you know whatever it is Citibank, law firm x da, da, da. like we were all like hanging out in that neighborhood and and today uh, and oh by the way you know like the business lunch crowd was so popping where you'd go out and, like everyone was getting lunch the same time of day and all of the eateries there were just brimming with yuppies. <laughs> yuppies. Um, uh, and, and I was like this, you know, at that point I had, my startup had failed, another startup had kind of failed, like I was throwing parties at night. And then I, I and so being part of this corporate office culture, um, it felt a little bit like I was role playing, frankly, because mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't really see myself as like that kind of person. But it also felt like a version of success, uh, I suppose, because that, you know, there was like, there were all these people in suits going to the office oh, every day yeah. and I was sort of like like kind of one of them mm-hmm. um the uh, and now you go to those office buildings and they're 80 percent vacant uh you go to one of those lunch spots 80 percent uh empty I mean actually I take it back most of those lunch spots don't even exist anymore no one's having dinner there no one's having breakfast there and so now that there is no business lunch crowd that establishment is shuttered like it, it doesn't exist. And the proportion of jobs, certainly in Midtown, that were provided by the commuter crowd, sky high. So uh, it, so cities are getting hit by a double whammy yep. at a minimum. Um, you know, you have these concerns about uh, various services, particularly around homelessness and public safety um, and the rest of it. And then you have uh, all of the folks who used to be commuting into th- that city now they're just zooming in or they, they you know, they, they left, uh, in some cases, they left the entire metro area. The, the Portland visit made me think, wow, this is happening in more places than I'd realized it. it might be happening in, you know, dozens of cities around the country. 
Detroit in 2011. So I remember growing up, I remember the way San Francisco was in the media a lot now regarding homelessness. I remember like Detroit was kind of a focus in the media regarding homelessness. I'm not well versed in it today. Has Detroit improved in that area? I'm sure it's a city, so there's still issues. But if so, if if they have improved, how did they go about that? Detroit, by all accounts, has gotten better. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, I I, I love the Detroit story. In my book, uh, The War on Normal People, I go through Youngstown and Camden and Gary and mm-hmm. other places that had deindustrialized, and then what happens to them with, with the larger theme being like, look, when you get rid of the jobs in an area, uh, crime spikes and like, yep. you know, mental illness and ruin and decay. And, you know, it's like, like after you lose the jobs, it's very hard to reconstitute. For sure. Uh, these environments. So, so Detroit is the most extreme example of that. And uh, I became friends with a guy named Dan Gilbert, who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers is the way most people think of him, but uh, he's in Detroit, not Cleveland. So he in, invests billions of dollars of his own money in downtown Detroit. Quicken has a giant building that he owned. It, it was actually one of the wildest things that, that um, I had experienced in my career to that point. And I visit Dan Gilbert in his office uh, in Detroit, and he has a model of downtown Detroit uh, in his office. It was like either some like you know superhero supervillain type stuff and uh, by the way i love dan gilbert and the man is a superhero in real life great family very philanthropic like i'll swear by dan gilbert really really great guy uh you know i'll stop there so he had but he had the the this uh model of downtown detroit and it was color-coded based upon buildings that he already owned of which there were any number and then buildings that they were making offers on, which were there were any number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there were buildings that were not theirs, and then there there were some other, other potential projects. So it was wild seeing this because it, it was an individual who... Uh, so Detroit at this point in time, it was about to declare bankruptcy. It had gone through several... Like, there was one very, very corrupt mayor who wound up in jail. So when, when someone looks at this billionaire, frankly, like, trying to revive a city... Like, you look at it and be like, oh, you know, that that's terrible. Like, having a private individual having so much control over, like, you know, like, a community. Like, you know, like, where, where have we gotten to? I, I, I'll tell you, if, if Dan Gilbert had not been there, like, you know, that place would be uh, a wreck. Because he went there when no one else wanted to go there. Yep. And invested a ton. Like, if he wasn't there, then, like, the entire thing is just, like, desolate. Yeah. Um, because you're talking about a city that declares bankruptcy, gives you a sense of how bad the services were at a certain point. I mean, people were telling stories about how you'd call 911 and it would be, you know, 90 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, <laughs> like some, some very, very long time frame. So this is when I was driving into the city and visiting. And then meeting with Dan and being like, hey, let's, let's do great stuff for Detroit. So since then, there's been more economic vitality um, in, in Detroit uh, more reinvestment. I mean, they still have some problems. But one of the things that Dan did, and this is one thing that uh, I talked about in my presidential campaign, because it still does piss me off. So he did an inventory of the blighted properties of Detroit. Because one of the problems is, let's say you're investing in the downtown core, which he was, and then there are, uh, you know, there, there are other neighborhoods. But then there are blighted neighborhoods that are total wrecks and like fire traps and the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so he priced out how much it would cost to demo the blight. Because you, it's hard to demo blight. You know, it's like you have to do it safely and expensively and, and uh, environmentally responsibly and a bunch of other things. So I think they costed it out and it was like $10 billion to demo all of the blighted buildings of Detroit. Which, by the way, Detroit's a beautiful physical environment. It's verdant. Uh, you know, like their, their park on the island is gorgeous. 
it was called the Paris of the Midwest uh, at one point because of its architecture. Uh, and it still has a ton of beauty. But w when you go turn a particular direction, you will also see blighted areas that, you know, like eat at you a little bit. Yep. And so he was like, hey, to get rid of all of these blighted buildings would cost about $10 billion, which is, by the way, more than, you know, any person has to spend on demoing um, the, these buildings. And, and, I mean, Detroit was literally declaring bankruptcy at this time. So it's like, you know, where are they going to get $10 billion? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think the state of Michigan threw in like a couple hundred million to you know, do some demo. This is a time, too, when if you wanted to lay claim to a property, you could just have it if you decide to pay for it. And so when, when I was running for president, I had this idea of, like, the legion of builders and destroyers because you literally need, it's like, you have this country that's falling apart, its infrastructure is decaying. I'm all for rebuilding infrastructure, but, you know, we should be demoing a lot of stuff. When you go to a lot of the country and you see all these, like, empty husks of, of buildings and whatnot, I mean, they really give rise to uh, urban blight. Um, which depresses property values in different ways, and it, it does spur crime uh, in, in different ways. We're just really terrible at actually knocking stuff down and, and having it be an environment that people could uh, live in or rebuild or, or, or whatnot. We just kind of like let it languish. It's a mm -hmm. very strange thing about uh, about the state. So that's what I was ticked off about. That's a fascinating point about him, though, because, yeah, a headline saying a billionaire is, you know, uh, taking in their hands to go about like recovering Detroit. Yeah, people are like, oh, billionaire, all hands all hands off, this is terrible. But it reminds me of the tweet you made the other day. It's like, uh, I think you were talking about Congress. I can't remember the tweet exactly, but you're talking about, you know, your favorite people involved in these things are people who have like better things to do, but they choose to be doing this. It's like, oftentimes I've talked about the incentives of, yeah, people who are have their lifelong career in politics. And so it's just a weird situation in that way. Oh, so yeah. this, this might as well. I thought you were talking about something else, but oh, no, like yeah. Elon Musk put out a tweet like a few weeks ago uh -huh. being like, who do you trust more, billionaires or politicians? Yep. And then people voted billionaires. I mean, you know, um, it, it could, could be biased for his account. But then there, there was this, you know, like are, it, are billionaires like evil for being billionaires or whatnot? And then I put out there, it's like, look, I tried to make a little be, I, I said like billionaires are human beings just like any others. Yep. You know, there's some good ones, some bad ones. And then I listed billionaires I thought everyone liked just to be like, you know, are you going to be mad at Oprah? Are you going to be mad at Michael Jordan? Are you going to be mad at Richard Branson? Are you going to be mad? Because <laughs> there's such a focus on like literally just like five different billionaires when there's what like three thousand billionaires in the world or something. Like I think something. there's a, like a media focus specifically on like uh, a lot of big tech billionaires, et cetera, that are. Yeah, putting LeBron evil, like... just became a billionaire. Mm -hmm. So my point is, you're going to hand LeBron the man started charter schools for underprivileged mm -hmm. kids in, in Ohio. You yep. know, he's just really good at basketball. It's like you know LeBron shouldn't be a billionaire. So, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. so I thought you were. Head, heading down that direction where it's like, oh, there's a billionaire uh, rebuilding the cities. But you're right, too, about these political lifers who are just clinging to it because they're scared of doing anything else. I mean, I think people know me well enough to know that if shit was humming in terms of American politics and, like, our public life, like, I would be thrilled mm -hmm. to be doing something else. <laughs> you know, I, I think people sense this about me. So, like, when, when someone, and so this is the, the messed up time we are in, in America. It's like, okay, systems are going do, going poorly. And then occasionally someone will raise their hands and be like, hey, I'm going to do something about mm -hmm. this. Like, I'm, I'm a billionaire. I'm going to spend $50 million, like, uh, on, you know, a mayoral campaign. Um, that's making me think of this guy in L.A. who's running, who I don't know. Right now, you have this fumbling system that's like kind of creaking along and like you know and and failing us in various ways. Unfortunately, we're at a time where having a billion dollars might be a prere 
prerequisite to your being able to compete (laughs) like in in this so (laughs) like you know i i you know it's like you look at it and being like like i i guess like i i get how you'd like it if just like a random moral person could raise their hand and be like i'm gonna you know do it i meet some of those random moral people all the time who are running for congress running for city council running for this like i hate to tell you this but most of them do not uh, get to a level where they're going to be saving us anytime soon because our system is so corrupt. Yep. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I recently put out a, a tweet that, you know, like I got asked about, about how the Democratic Party has become a lobbying firm with a political party attached, which I thought was fairly objectively accurate. <laughs> you know, you look at billionaires and be like, oh, like, you know, like, screw you for going in and, you know, re- rebuilding the city. It's like, uh, you know, without that person, that, that was not happening. And like, again, there's some things that certain uh, very wealthy individuals are doing that I have a problem with, like very wealthy corporations. Are, but it, but it does it's not intrinsically problematic if someone who has a lot of resources to, decides to try and do something uh, positive. Well, on a personal growth scale, on a business scale, it's like competition fuels innovation. And if you have a blue state and talking about San Francisco, a blue, very blue city, it's like there's not a lot of competition there. And put, yeah, with the two party system. And so it's like not even an independent in terms of a political stance, just an independent entity coming in to be that sadly competition in a way of like recovering homelessness can be vital. Like this mayoral candidate in L.A. who's running against Karen Bass, who I hear really good things about Karen Bass, but he's coming and saying, like, look, I'm a manager, like, I'm going to clean up this homelessness. Yep. And I confess to you all, I find that argument at least somewhat compelling because it's like, well, you know, like, do I trust someone who's been in government uh, to solve this problem, given that it's a problem in all of these different blue cities and you know like you're, you're more likely to be someone who's going to like shove money into a dysfunctional set of agencies and then it, it continues to get worse but like you're not really that concerned about it because you can just kind of glide over to your next election maybe you have like these people who are climbing and falling within like this this dysfunctional system whose incentives aren't actually tied to delivering or solving the problem yep uh, whereas i'm pretty confident that uh, the guy who's running on it and who does not have to be doing it, like he's going to do something a, a, a about it. Now, I mean, I don't have a you know horse in that particular race or anything, but I can see why it's going to work on a lot of people because like more folks are getting fed up. Uh, I'm getting fed up. Um, more people are getting fed up with just like failing institutions and then no one really being held accountable. Like the, the, the San Francisco recalls of the DA and the school board members is really like a like a primal scream. I mean, you know, like the, the fact that people who are frankly like rank and file Democrats for the most part decided to stand up and be like, all right, enough of this mm-hmm. nonsense. I, I have conversations with people too. It's like that there's like this, I have you can imagine. So I'm, I used to be a Democrat and now I'm not. And I go around, I'm building the forward party and it's good fun. Like I talk to all sorts of people who are ostensibly Democrats who are just completely losing faith in the party and, and uh, um, leaving the party, mm-hmm. honestly. I mean, I think the sweet spot for the Ford Party is actually independents and moderate Republicans who look up and be like, hey, this Trump thing, the Republican Party, like not <laughs> not what I signed up for. Yep. But more and more Democrats, whether they go to Ford or not, are completely losing faith in this thing. So what do you think is like the 
kind of first step in terms of yeah political governments not talking about these independent entities to yeah within these nonprofits you have an incentive you want people to keep their jobs but it's also yeah you need that money to actually be going to the problem at hand so what is the solution there well so the the issue for a lot of them is a change in policy and then a change Mm -hmm. in political will um where you look at someone and, and what i was suggesting when i was running for mayor was like look um, deferring to the person who might not be in their right mind is like not the right standard. Yep. You know, like there was a point earlier where if someone was in distress or unconscious or inebriated, we said like, hey, let's get them to, to a bed. Um, and the, the single biggest thing is that we don't have psych beds for these people. Did you ever see a movie called uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Unfortunately not. Very sorry. No, oh, it was in the <laughs> 70s. I barely saw mm-hmm. it. So what happened was that there was a period of unwilling in, uh, institutionalization. And then a movie called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out and essentially painted a picture of it being totally inhumane to institutionalize someone against their will, which I buy. I mean, it'd be terrible to be institutionalized against your will and like not be able to get out and the rest of it. So there was this massive shift away from institutionalizing anyone against their will. And I think the standard went so far now where it's impossible to institutionalize anyone. That this is why homeless people are dying on the street in San Francisco. It's like, oh, can't do anything. Like, what? You don't want to go? Can't go. So the institutions now are just kind of circling the person being like, well, don't know what to do. Don't know what to do. Um, and we all know there's a medium ground. You know, it's like, look, I'm not going to just grab people and like, you know, like throw them in institutions. Yeah. But I but I'm, I think like taking you to a place where you can be evaluated. And then if you do need institutionalization, there's an honest to God place I can bring you that will give you those services and like you'll be better and the public will be better off. So we, we've lost the capacity and then we've lost the political will and then the incentives are. And so like that you you now you like walk around and look at the problem and then like, you know, everyone shrugs at it. So there are some very, very deep-rooted changes that would need to take place. The problem is right now our institutions and our politics don't have the wherewithal to make those changes, and so everyone just moves. So you're saying the solution is, yeah, just breaking the two-party system. So in an ideal world, break the two-party system, you have a new party that comes in and says maybe something along the lines of what I just said, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of people come together and be like, yeah, it makes sense. Like, there's a middle ground here. Yep. And then you you say to folks, okay, look, we're going to take these people, we're going to bring them to other environments, we're going to evaluate them, these things. There's an honest uh, to, uh, path for them. That doesn't involve just, frankly, like jailing them for three hours and then having them out in the street. There, there has to be some incentive for uh, accountability, really. Because, like, some of the horror stories you hear in New York um, where someone gets arrested six times and then the seventh time they do something heinous and it's in all the papers and be like, hey, they got arrested six times already mm-hmm. this year. I mean, that stuff is real. It's happening. No one's held accountable for when they fail. I mean, my great fear now is that you have better leaders, you have worse leaders, some of them that are truly terrible or very destructive, some of them that are great, like do some good. But it's all within like a, a margin. Yep. You know what I mean? A- and during this period, people are just getting more and more fed up and and they're going to wind up choosing the either like the real strong man or the fake strong man who acts like a strong man it's like if you give me a choice between people who just like aren't getting shit done and are posturing and are just like kind of play acting and the rest of it or this person who will get stuff done even some stuff i don't agree with like eventually i'll just go this direction mm-hmm. now we're, we're at a zone where like the the strong man i say the faux strong man because like most of the folks who are uh, uh, in this realm 
are fakes and phonies. <laughs> you know what I mean? So in a way, they just give you that feeling. Yep. But people will choose the feeling. I mean, it, it's one reason why, I, like, I, I look at some of the races that are going on around the country. I'm 100% confident that Republicans are going to win the House. Um, and, you know, I don't know. You're not allowed to be 100% confident in anything. So I'm like 99. 99%, 99%. <laughs> 99% confident. 0.9. You know, are Republicans actually delivering on stuff? Like, mm-hmm. Republicans are delivering on feelings. Uh, at this point more than anything. The, the problem is that Democrats, the feelings that Democrats are delivering on are not great feelings. <laughs> you know, it's not like you're, like, and, and I, in a way I feel for Democrats because it's like, oh, wow, you like, you know, like you have a lot of problems to solve. Like, you know, you have these like, you know, institutions that you're responsible for de facto because Republicans now have just become the like tear it down zealots yep. <laughs> so they're not like responsible for anything so the democrats end up being responsible for the these these struggles and failures uh but you know it's just going to be very very hard to go to voters and energize them around you know like two or four more years of institutions that people are turning on your point about being able to decipher yeah going with someone that you maybe don't agree with fully but that's going to actually get stuff done rather than people who just talk is going to be way more important over the next decade i mean we keep seeing the the merge of politics always has had an element of entertainment to it but like more and more so with just the conversations going on on social media and everything i don't think it's crazy when entertainers come in like i think matthew mcconaughey for example he genuine gives off a genuine energy about the things that he's talking about and the actions that he wants to take and his speech last i believe it was last week was on point but there are a lot of like people within the entertainment realm that are coming in that are almost like sweet talkers in a way and they're not actually going to get stuff done. And we're going to see this increasingly over the next decade and like two decades, three decades. Well, well yeah. this is one of the fundamental problems, Jules, is like, mm-hmm. the, and this is my fear, is that you could like swap in different people in yeah. that seat. And the the machinery is unable to deliver. Mm-hmm. So really, the person in the seats is going to be based on how they make us feel. And exactly. so it's like, I will now prefer this sort of feeling. It's one reason why I, I'm bullish on Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm presidential campaign because it's like look dude's immune from a lot of the nonsense and people would actually be interested in hearing him yep. uh speak uh and the uh feelings that he emanates or would would instill in people are like much much more positive yep. than the the feelings you're going to get from just about any political figure mm-hmm. so you know and like people who think that there's like the real and the performative at this point our politics has become so performative that at this <laughs> yeah. point you might as well just embrace a superior performer. The world has become performative in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and this this is one of the the things I struggle with is that I still imagine myself to be like a get shit done yep. like operator like substantive mm-hmm. human, but I'm now trafficking in a realm where it's like okay to solve the world's problems we have to play you know, into and we have to fix the politics yeah. and like you can't fix the politics without uh, you know in, in engaging in like this political conversation mm-hmm. um, pains me <laughs> pains you too maybe but you know like we got to do it we got we got to go in and fix it and rationalize it mm-hmm. uh, I am really pumped about the growth of the forward party over this last number of days and weeks like it, we've been growing like crazy like, like a beanstalk yeah. uh-huh. uh, and we have some very exciting announcements coming up um, so uh, I'm super pumped about it um, but I, I think one of the reasons we're growing is because people are waking up to just how dysfunctional things are 
both sides are like, oh, you know, like, like so many people are ready to walk away from the two-party system um, because they just realize it's, it's like you're getting snowed and bullshitted a lot of the time uh, and things just really are not working. Yeah, I think, again, just over the next decade and beyond, having more conversations about that, those ties of, yes, the feeling that we get from people is extremely important. I, you know, we can trust our intuitions with how genuine people are, are but there's going to have to be a lot more conversations about that. It's like, who's actually going to get stuff done? Who's going to actually get yeah. stuff done? Uh-huh. And the thing we have to push on, Jules, is like eventually people are going to turn to the strongman or the fake strongman. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be good. So you have to figure out, oh, it's like, okay, who's a positive get stuff done yeah. person and be willing to head in that direction? So so that that that's um, the challenge, really. Yeah. One of my friends sent me a quote recently, and it was like, um, the most entertaining outcome is like the most likely today. And I'm like, that's actually pretty true a lot of times, but. That's why we need Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. Let our entertainment be positive instead of just the negative train wreck. Yes. Save us, Matthew. Matthew.